0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition: How Etsy crafted its biophilic headquarters; how Microsoft's Jim Hanna got his new job; the power of climate competent boards; and Mastercard's master plan for addressing the Sustainable Development Goals. We're giving credit where credit is due, this week on 350. It's December 2nd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, senior writer, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren.
1: Hey there! I'm shaking off my turkey stupor. How are you doing?
0: I'm <laughs> good. Little tryptophan hangover.
1: Yeah, just a little bit, but you know, good times overall.
0: Yep, uh, you were in here in the Bay Area over the over the holiday.
1: Yeah, up in the redwoods, north of San Francisco, near the Russian River. Um, actually, some rain, which is nice in drought-stricken California. Um, and you headed east.
0: I did. I was in Manassas, Virginia, also known as Gateway to the Inlaws. <laughs> 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 so i had a, I had actually a really nice time the weather was great and uh got to spend some time in dc and seeing some friends and some uh it was it was good it was nice to to get away even to dc where you know things are different than they are here in california um but you know that's the way things have always been and will continue to be and maybe even more so going forward but let's not get into that right now. Let's just get right down to business with the week in review.
1: So earlier this week, coming back from the holiday, we ran our newest installment of a fun series that we just started up fairly recently called Getting the Job. This one looked at how Microsoft's Jim Hanna, formerly of Starbucks, got his new gig with Microsoft. Um, Jim is the director of data center sustainability for Microsoft now, so he's working along with Rob Bernard, Microsoft's chief environmental and city strategist.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, the fact that... um, Microsoft hired someone specifically to look at uh, data centers. Is you know uh, emblematic of, of where the critical environmental issues are in uh, in tech companies, certainly uh, in lots of companies now that that have big uh, uh, data needs, and um, you know the the data centers that are being built for Microsoft, Google, Twitter, Facebook, and 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 Thousands and tens of thousands of companies that almost none of us have ever heard of uh, are huge energy uh, users, and there's a been this this almost an arms race in a good way going on for the past uh, uh, number of years to outdo one another in terms of the efficiency. Um, in terms of uh, of the operation energy efficiency but even lo- the the space efficiency the water use and certainly the the energy use and 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 renewable energy use in particular so um the fact that uh that Microsoft brought someone on to specifically look at that, I think, is is uh, important and, and interesting.
1: Yeah, you mentioned sort of the arms race and data center sustainability, not only companies brokering power purchase agreements to, to use wind or solar to power those operations, but also some things that are a little further, out. like I know there's been some talk about underwater data centers, um, just sort of trying to mitigate that footprint of these these big tech installations. And one of the interesting things in this, Article um, was it? Rob Bernard specifically said that they were looking for someone who had a really global purview and Jim was an interesting choice because he, he comes from Starbucks where they've obviously got a supply chain that stretches around the world. So for him, he sort of talks about how it's this data centers now is this area where it's it's definitely a global issue where you can apply sustainability techniques in how you build these operations centers around the world. But it's also a really local issue because a lot of times you're working with the city government uh, for access to clean power and those sorts of things. So it will be interesting to see how he sort of navigates navigates that dynamic
0: and Rob Bernard is uh, uh, Microsoft's chief environmental and city strategist I think that's interesting an environmental and city strategist and again a, a sort of interesting uh, uh, title for The Times and um, and he uh, we've had him on this program before and he's a, a regular uh, at uh, our events. Uh, he's he's Jim's boss and the one who hired. Him. And so what was interesting, uh, as we like to do, is we peek uh, very frequently inside the profession of sustainability inside big companies. Uh, John Davies, our uh, vice president, and senior analyst, uh, talked to both Rob and Jim to sort of you know tease out the story of of why uh, Microsoft is doing this, uh, hiring this this position, why Jim was the right person, and what. The, the bigger picture is here uh, about you know, what this says about where, where Microsoft is going. So um, I recommend that. And it's just great insight into what it takes to be a, uh, a sustainability professional these days.
1: And one of the that's interesting, they actually delved a little bit into what the interview process was like. So really sort of getting in behind the wheels there. Um, and, and Jim said that the interview process... Um, What really struck him about it was the number of people in different roles that interviewed him uh, from all over the business, law, corporate affairs, civil and mechanical engineers before you even got to the data center construction and software teams. Um, and and it kind of goes along with uh, ultimately some advice that Rob Bernard gives at the end of the interview um, when our John Davies asks him sort of what advice he might have for people earlier in their sustainability careers. And his advice is to really sort of Uh, steep yourself in one facet of an organization that you'd most like to impact. He calls out um, a couple of college degree programs where you're majoring in a business discipline but it's paired with a sustainability degree as well. So maybe not focusing totally on the environment, also having that day-to-day expertise. uh, So something I'm sure lots of young people in the field will take heed of.
0: (laughs) And some not so young ones, so one of the things that uh, as i mentioned rob's uh, title has to do with en- environment and cities strategists and cities is is has been looming large uh particularly post election but way before that uh on uh in the climate arena um as it it's become evident um Certainly, in the United States, that that there isn't going to be any political leadership on climate change at the national level. That cities will be the ones that need to step up. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, uh, put out an interesting tweet. I think it was just before Thanksgiving, um, saying that uh, there's a there's a mayor's compact. I can't remember the name of it offhand. Uh, uh, that you know maybe that group of mayors, include some of the biggest cities in the U.S., would come together to uh, if uh, the Trump administration decided to pull out of the Paris Agreement, that maybe these cities would step in and say, "Well, we are still committed in some way." I don't know how that would work. It wouldn't be—it would be a little bit different, uh, but it would maybe just symbolic. But the point is, is that cities uh, are looming increasingly large. Uh, as the place where climate change solutions are are going to be happening, Uh, and states as well. There was a piece, an op-ed piece in the New York Times that ran on Wednesday uh, called Cities and States Lead on Climate Change, Uh, and the dateline is Iowa City. Where uh, the wind turbines that are uh, coming out of the cornfields there, uh, and, and the solar business that, thanks to Mid America Energy, the big utility there, um, uh, where they're they're making commitments to uh, get to you know 85% of Iowa customers will be electrified by clean energy by the end of this decade, um, and so we had a piece this week by uh, Rhea Su, uh, who is the president of the NRDC, the Nat- Natural Resources Defense Council, big uh, global organization, uh, a similar theme that says, if Trump won't step up on climate, cities will. Um, and uh, I think it's just it's going to be one of the interesting places to watch.
1: Yeah, like you alluded to, I think this is sort of, in some ways, a, a bit of a long time coming, uh, especially during the Paris climate talks last year. There was a lot of talk about so-called subnational climate actors. So you had like the state of California sent a big delegation and also individual cities, like you said, obviously now sort of permeating beyond those green bubbles on the coast, getting into the center of the country, which is interesting. Um, But this piece um, from Ria Su looks specifically at an effort called City Energy, which is a joint project between the NRDC, and an organization called the Institute for Market Transformation. And this is a national initiative to create healthier and more prosperous cities by improving the energy efficiency of buildings. So obviously infrastructure is sort of a key leverage point in thinking about the impact that that cities have on the planet. And they've got big cities involved like Atlanta, Boston, L.A., Miami. Uh, so some really different challenges there.
0: And one of the things that's interesting about uh, climate and cities is that it's not just about renewable energy use, although that's uh, an energy efficiency, although those are two big components. Jeff Biggers, who wrote the New York Times piece that I mentioned before, he's the uh, founder of the Climate Narrative Project at the University of Iowa, talks about um, California's moves to reduce its carbon emissions 40 percent uh, by below 1990 levels by 2030, and that and what that involves, which is uh, setting benchmarks, high benchmarks for developing green enterprise zones, uh, renewable energy, obviously, uh, locally cultivated food, uh, restoring biodiversity, planting trees, emphasizing walkability, uh, low carbon transportation, zero waste. So there's a whole suite of solutions that cities increasingly are going to be. Um, looking to uh, to address climate change, and by the way, make much nicer, safer, uh, hopefully happier, and more prosperous places to live. So, uh, cities and and climate change uh, are going to be a topic we'll be looking at, and particularly, what's the business role there? What's the business Uh, opportunity, the business uh, commitments, the public-private partnerships that are going to come out of that, that's going to be a really interesting story to watch.
1: So sticking with the topic of climate and sort of potential areas of impact outside of Capitol Hill in the White House, we had another interesting piece this week from Keith Tuffley, who is the managing partner and CEO of the B Team that was titled The Power of Climate Competent Boards.
0: Yeah, the B team is this group of uh, of global uh, leaders: uh, Richard Branson, uh, Jochen Zeiss, who, is, uh, who used to run. Uh, Puma, um, Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, uh, a bunch of people, Ariana Huffington, uh, David Crane, uh, who uh, among his many credentials is editor-at-large here at Green Business, and so on, Andrew Liveris, the CEO of Dow. Um, and they're focused on what they call Plan B, Plan A being business as usual, and how do we create open, transparent, and uh, good governance, accountability, uh, um, uh, and, and specifically climate-friendly companies. And doing it from the top down the very top leadership and that's where uh boards of directors for whom the ceo works and and who uh themselves work for the shareholders um have not played a big role but uh this uh piece by Keith is is advocating for that
1: Yeah, the piece picks up on some familiar concepts from groups like We Mean Business, a coalition uh, that I'm sure people are now familiar with. That was formed ahead of COP21 that really works to sort of point out that businesses can actually benefit from higher internal rates of return on low carbon investments, um, align their companies with climate and energy regulation, Build more resilient operations and supply chains, all kinds of sort of corporate perks that, that have been sort of in the conversation for a while now. And it all boils down to this concept, as Keith points out, which is companies being able to truly integrate climate change into the strategic planning process. So sort of this idea of normalizing, which has been a big buzzword <laughs> in the media of late, but normalizing sustainability as sort of a standing item on board agendas. Um, that's making it more routine for companies to adopt things like net zero emissions targets. And um, eventually, presumably, it's also uh, something like 100 percent renewable energy is something we're seeing more companies commit to. So I think the key here, Joel, something that we've been talking about a lot is sort of how many companies uh, are ultimately willing to go this route beyond the, the companies, the Nikes, the Googles, etc., who we hear about most often in this context.
0: Yeah, and the other important role that, that climate-competent boards can play, and, and Keith notes this, is communicating with shareholders and other stakeholders on this. Um, that is not just coming out of sustainability department or corporate comms, but really helping to inform uh, the policies that are, you know, are going to engage institutional investors uh, and shareholder proposals on climate issues. One of the longstanding issues here is that Uh, is or this conventional wisdom is that institutional investors, big pension funds, universities, insurance companies and others that have massive um, uh, retirement accounts, have massive uh, pools of money in in the stock market, uh, that they don't care about climate in that it's not material to stock price. They may care about it personally or even organizationally, but it doesn't really affect their their investment decisions and this is a place where boards of directors can play a role uh if they really are as keith calls them climate competent and i think that's a this is a again another topic that uh we i think will be on the rise in in the coming uh, months and over the next few years as, as more and more companies see climate change as as strategic possibly even existential and not just the right thing to do
1: So, speaking of corporate action on all things climate, our senior writer Heather Clancy had an interesting look this week at the Sustainable Development Goals and specifically the mission behind MasterCard's SDG master plan. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about it all is Heather Clancy. How's it going, Heather? Hey, Lauren. Good. Raining here in New Jersey, but otherwise good. Actually raining here in Northern California. So I don't Woo-hoo. know. I guess it's that time of year. Um, <sighs> so I to, to del- take a step back, the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, as they are fondly known, and one of the more awkward sustainability acronyms, um, were given the green light by the UN in September of last year, um sort of uh, they they are not legally binding but uh they they tackle some very broad issues on a global scale sort of ending poverty uh targeting food scarcity pollution lots of different facets so what i was curious to talk to you about was sort of how a company an individual company makes sense of sort of like these these big mm-hmm. overarching mm-hmm. concepts um so what did you find in terms of how mastercard is focusing their efforts
2: yeah. So it, it, for MasterCard, it's a framework of talking about things that, that actually in many ways they've been doing for the past, oh, I don't know, longer than six years, certainly, but it, it accelerated about six years ago. Um, the the sustainable development goals really pay, play into their master plan of being uh, a, a catalyst for financial inclusiveness all around the world. So MasterCard, obviously, we in the United States know them very well, but in other countries, they have a very different role. We think of them as a credit card company, but in in places like um, Sub-Saharan Africa, they are turning out to be a very key uh, ally of the government in helping digitize certain um, social programs and government, like, for example, welfare programs. So it's it's a pretty interesting um, opportunistic but also altruistic approach to, uh, that they're taking to the sustainable development goals.
1: Hmm. Definitely not just credit cards. It sounds like, and it's also you in terms of the scale we're talking about here, uh, the financial elements involved in implementing the SDGs. I think you cite uh, an estimate that it will require an annual. $5 trillion to $7 trillion to finance the goals, um, obviously setting up this overarching role for businesses to play as a source for investments and then sort of like you're alluding to as a driver of tech R&D. Um, do you, I'm curious though, uh, within MasterCard, was, was it clear sort of what the catalyst was for getting involved with the SDGs?
2: For them, it's it's a way of, of getting into markets that they haven't been in. They're in like two, 210 com- countries, I think, that they uh, quote now, but they're trying to reach people that have been um, excluded in their terms from the financial system. Their overall goal is to reach um, about 500 million new people and merchants. By 2020, and I think that goal is is a couple of years old. It's not just a year, but but that's a lot of people. And so far, they're they're about halfway toward that. Um, in terms of like you know, one of the things I found most interesting when I was speaking with Louise Holden is that she doesn't sit in any kind of corporate sustainability team. She's part of the commercial business. She's part of of, of driving partnerships between the private and public sector. And I think that's um in many ways a, key, a very key point of of what she's doing and and I um she had a couple of things to say about that
3: we sit within the business which is a fundamental um, advantage and recognition that what we do is ultimately commercially sustainable um so we sit within the business therefore um commercially we have to wash our faces um which for 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 me and for us means that we can sustain investment, and we can sustain our involvement in kind of what we do. Ie, it's not CSR, it's not philanthropic. What we do is is commercially, you know, grow the markets of the future. Um, commercially, we 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 strike up partnerships, and we support organisations, and we work with governments and humanitarian organisations, and 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 many different of that of that ilk. Um, to, to help them, you know, do what they need to do in the markets kind of around the world. And and some of those markets are very fragile, very very, very much at the early stage of development. And some of them are very mature and at a later stage of development. Um, but we we certainly kind of our model is is, you know, similar in all of those markets in that we are a commercial organisation and we support kind of in the market of the future.
1: And then to delve down into the specifics a bit, you sort of give the example of the financial picture in India, obviously going through some adjustments with their currency right now. Um, do you have any sense of sort of how these efforts actually look likely to play out um, at the country scale or even at
2: a more localized level? I think of it it is very similar to what happened when the developing world got their hands on mobile phone technology. Um, if you think about it, the United States was kind of backwards when it came to adopting smartphones and, and, um, and before that mobile phones. And that's partly because there was a pretty good wired infrastructure in place. Um, in other places, like, in, like in, in emerging markets and all these places where there really isn't a way of communicating, the mobile phone is the thing, right? So in a similar way, if you think about it, um, the digital currency movement is going to, I think, have, have similar sort of um, uptick in terms of adoption. In India, there's been a pretty dramatic, um, there's a pretty dramatic uh, statement by the prime minister earlier this month, here in November, um, and he wants to eliminate like certain types of currency, and I think it's actually most broadly used. There's two um, rupee denominations that, that, that they're eliminating entirely, and you have to go and hand in this money or you won't be able to use it. They're trying to eliminate a black market. But um, there, the thing about it is that there's a lot of cash. The economy there is very cash right now, and it just could be could push it over to the the digital tipping point. Um, in other places, there's there's just ways of um, of doing things that weren't possible before. So in, uh, I think it was in Nairobi, Nairobi. I was I was speaking with them about, but they have a, a a whole welfare program now that they are able to run that they could not run before because Mastercard has some fraud sort of identification technology that um, when they teamed up with the government, they were able to get these people into the system and then distribute payments that they couldn't distribute before just because there was so much fraud and not, not a very easy way of doing it. So so it, it does enable things and, and services in in places um, that weren't possible before.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, uh, the welfare example in particular, because you could see the role that a company like MasterCard would have to play in like SDG number eight, I'm reading from your story, which is Mm -hmm. decent work and economic growth. But the ones that seem much less obvious are like number five, gender equality, sustainable cities and communities is number 11 that you also call out. Um, So are there any other sort of things you'd mention there?
2: So, yeah, the gender equality one is interesting. They have a, a mastercard as as many other companies have realized um is paying a lot of attention to helping women um get into entrepreneurial roles right and so that they can earn money and they can sort of advance their families um, because they they have proven and seen that when when women earn money, they can put it they invest back into their family they invest back into education and so forth um as far as a sustainable city cities example i was i was um puzzled about that one and then i realized if you think about it you know when you look at the transportation system a metro car, for example um paying to get on the subway paying to get on the bus as you digitize those those um transactions there's a ton of information and data that a financial system can gather about where people are um where maybe there's um there's more police action needed. Um, if everyone's congregating in a certain neighborhood, why should, maybe that there should be more lights used in that area, or if, if certain areas are empty, maybe dim the lights, you know? So there's, there's just a uh, great information about, um, uh, transportation sort of movement and mobility that can play into, uh, um, services throughout a, a municip- municipality. So that, They've got um, some interesting partnerships that they're developing there to to help with that. And um, that's the role that MasterCard will play. That, that's a very big, much of a data role in that in that instance.
1: Mm, yeah, sounds like lots of moving parts. So this will be mm-hmm. interesting to watch, particularly sort of what governments they, they may begin to work with. The one thing, though, that is sort of a double-edged sword with the SDGs is how broad they are. Um, so I'm curious, did anyone at the company sort of address that facet of all this? So
2: I called out the, the, you know, the five in my story that, that are, that are kind of highlighted. They're actually looking at all 17 and what, what they've done, um, in, with the help of their CEO is really focus in on, on certain ones. And, and it, it's just like a ripple effect, right? If you work on some, some of the ones that really play most into your business, then you're going to be able to affect others in either tangentially or just sort of by, 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 um, in, you know, indirect means, you know, that again, like this, like I said, the ripple effect. And this really started have, uh, accelerating when um, their CEO came into place about six years ago. And um, this is what Louise had to say about that.
3: Actually, within MasterCard, it, it's something that's actually been running um, within a number of our teams. And yes, you can call it in our DNA, but certainly within our kind of commercial kind of approach, actually, um, for some time. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, have a very, um, enlightened again, we're in a very privileged position that we have a fantastic CEO, RJ Bango. Um, and when he came on board, gosh, six, seven years ago, um, we, we were already in a, in a period of transition where we were recognizing that, um, what we had, what we saw, the way our, we connected a number of different kind of organizations and individuals could, um, could, could, could really can open up more opportunities and open up um, um, kind of unleash more of our technology than, than we had done previously. And we went, we were really kind of um, accelerating a change. Um, And that change was all about um, doing well by doing good and recognizing that, you know, being able to include more individuals, to um, provide insight and analytics to um, humanitarian organizations, to support, um, you know, some of the some of the kind of incredibly populated refugee um, camps in in Kenya, for example, for um, allowing shops and retailers to recognise when they're, they're you know how, how to kind of draw in a, a greater and, and, and more kind of sustainable kind of footfall. All all of this was something that we could that kind of it became commercial. It became kind of running within our kind of approach.
1: Great. Well, senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks so much for giving us an inside look at how MasterCard is tackling the STGs. I'm sure this is a topic that we'll hear much more about from other companies as well.
2: Thank you, Lauren. I hope you have a great week.
1: Switching gears to design, we had an interesting inside look this week at how handmade craft marketplace Etsy crafted its new biophilic headquarters in none other than Brooklyn. Uh, Joining us now to talk a little bit about that is our associate editor, Anya Halsemeiser. How's it going, Anya?
4: Hey, I'm doing well, Lauren, how are you?
1: Good, good, so it sounds like an interesting uh, sort of expedition you went on. You actually
4: went and toured Etsy's new facility, is that right? Yes, I went and toured Etsy's headquarters. Um, It's a new building that was opened in Dumbo, which is a really beautiful area in downtown Brooklyn. Cool. And it's a big space, right? Like 200,000
1: square feet we're talking about?
4: Yes, it was very big and several floors and each one was very diff- different as you would come to, ex- I guess, expect from Etsy, which is the, the home of the handcrafted goods. So it was almost like walking through an office building slash museum.
1: Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, and we're going to get into some of the living building issues. Uh, Applications that they used, but I was also curious, just sort of like what the scene was like. I, I think I saw at least one living wall in your photos. Were there any other sort
4: of quirky things or stylistic things that were interesting? Yeah, there were hundreds of different uh, handcrafted, even like tables and chairs. Um, so one of the one of the living future, we're uh, living building challenge um, principles is using furniture um, uh, that is made by artisans who are using non-toxic materials. So Etsy took that one step further and used their, uh, own, um, their own sellers to create their office furniture. So everything has a, even the most, you know, mo- average looking thing has a history behind it. Um, what else did we see? The uh, the lamps, um, there are these huge overhead lamps that kind of look like, to me, they look like circus tent covers, kind of like they were very colorful and made out of paper and these beautiful geometric patterns. And, um, you walk down a hallway and there, there's a library or a yoga studio where people can just take a time out and breathe and meditate. Um, there are paper cranes that were draped over some walls um and as you mentioned there were these living walls which are basically indoor gardens with plants just like creeping up to the ceiling which are really beautiful and uh and glass paneled walls showcasing some etsy uh, sellers crafts
1: interesting all kinds of stuff especially when you mentioned the the furniture I have found myself on more than one occasion coveting a like $3,000 reclaimed wood, whatever. So I'm sure that was pretty amazing. Um, but I did want to take a step back and just make sure we are clear on sort of what a living building is, because I think this is a term that has been thrown around in the green building world um, for a while now, especially with projects like the Bullitt Institute up in Seattle. Um, but can you just talk a little bit about what the Living Building Challenge certification is and how that sort of applied to Etsy? Sure.
4: The Living Building Challenge was something that I had only heard of uh, when I got the invitation to tour the Etsy building. And it's a very rigorous process. Um, so the Living Future Institute has a Living Building Challenge certification. And only, I think, eight buildings in the world have this, uh, the full certification, but hundreds of are working towards getting certified or partially certified and living building is what's called like a regenerative building and regenerative regenerative building. It's not something that takes from the environment or even the people working in it. So, or in the building, it, um, reduces or completely eliminates, uh, its energy use. So, or it's, um, its dependence on fossil fuels. So it's not uh, it's not an emitter of fossil fuels. It's usually, well, it's supposed to use renewable energy, um, like Etsy, for example, has solar panels on its roof. Th- those power about 1% of the building, but then um, the rest of the electricity in the headquarters, which is huge, um, comes from other uh, sites in Brooklyn. It's uh, another facet of a living building is that it uses recycled water. Um, and like for example, live, uh, water that would be captured from a roof and then recycled through um, a system inside the building itself. Uh, it also has to take into account worker happiness and health. Uh, so, as we can all attest in our daily lives, it's much easier and uh, and, and better to work in a place where you have natural sunlight and you're not cooped up inside, you know, highly air conditioned frigid building where you can, you know, feel like you can, you know, at at least feel the sun on your face, for example. Um, So it's also a building that should be uh, walkable and, um, you know, has a, also has a, a positive toll on the business environment uh, around it. So, for example, Etsy uses its uh, uses its artisans um, for decorating or um, you, creating furniture for the building. So. It's, uh, it supports the local economy. It's, um, biophilic, which means it mimics the natural world. So it doesn't overstress its, uh, its employees. And it's good for the environment by using renewable energy. They're using renewable energy, non-toxic materials and paints and furnishings and, uh, solar power.
1: Mm -hmm. And so thinking about things like not only renewables, um, interesting that Etsy is using a mix of on and off-site solar, um, but also sort of these other issues we've heard about a lot in the the building sphere, sort of better thinking about aligning health and how you build infrastructure, um, cutting down on toxicity. It's all interesting stuff. And I did want to ask you, I saw a note that... um, Etsy was specifically looking to earn something called a pedal certification.
4: Uh, what does that mean? The pedals of the living building challenge are differentiated facets of the certification of a living building. So they're very ambitious requirements for um, place, water, energy, health and happiness, materials, equity and beauty. So these are all different seven performance categories or pedals. And each category is rigorously designed to satisfy the requirements of this regenerative or living building that has the beneficial impact on the natural social environment uh, around it and on the people working in it. So they don't use toxic materials. They leave a net zero impact on energy use and water. And they have to look beautiful and make their workers happy as well.
1: Interesting. So kind of like a lead platinum building or sort of like a, a higher echelon. Of a living building, it sounds like. And you also actually talked to one of the folks in charge of the International Living Future Institute's Living Building Challenge, I understand.
4: Yes. And here's some uh, audio from an interview that I did with James Connolly, director of the International Living Future Institute's Living Product Challenge, which interacts with the materials pedal of the living building challenge certification, ensuring that even the day-to-day materials that we use in our offices don't come from any resources that hurt the environment.
5: We think, and the reason the program is holistic in its approach, is that you have to solve um, multiple issues at once if you're gonna create a really high-quality project, and in fact, be a living building. So you not only have to be energy efficient, um you have to also uh be non toxic. Um and those two issues come into conflict. Um and then you also have to have to be beautiful. Um and I know that there's been a lot of buildings or there were a lot of buildings built, um green buildings in the the sixties that, you know, really didn't live up to the aesthetic standards of other designs um or the quality standards. Um and that really set the movement back. Uh, but I think when you enter a space like Etsy's space or, or the other living buildings that we have around the world, um, you can tell immediately that the space is not only more sustainable, just better. Uh It just feels better, um, a better place to be um, and a more productive place to be for employees that makes you feel good uh, about being inside it. And I think if we can tie design and sustainability together in that way, uh we can really push forward the movement much faster.
1: So we've covered a lot of ground. It sounds like this building sort of incorporates a lot of different elements from thinking about materials to uh, the energy supply, all, all kinds of different things. But just to sum up, I think one area of interest for our readers is sort of how you think about attracting employees, retaining employees. Um, through things like the office space that you provide. So, any last thoughts on sort of how Etsy is trying to use this living building endeavor to sort of uh, better the
4: atmosphere for employees uh, and the environment at the same time? So, it's not just anecdotal evidence that shows um, employees are happier, more productive, and more engaged when they come to work in a place that they where they enjoy and they're proud to you know, they're proud to spend their time. Um, Studies show that workers are even especially millennial workers want to um, they want to be employed by a company that has a social cause. And even uh, in speaking with a tour guide who works for Etsy, uh, she said that when she comes to work now in the new headquarters, she personally feels more engaged, happier, more productive. And she sees her colleagues uh, feeling the same way. So it's a win win for everybody.
1: Perfect. Associate Editor Anya Hollomizer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lauren.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organizations, the stories and other things we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks as always to podcast director, Saraya Malconian. Contact us by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd tell others about it on by spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, hot air balloons or any other means at your disposal. Meanwhile, we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Greenbiz 350 until then from all of us at Greenbiz Group I'm Joel McCower thanks so much for listening until next time have a great day